the youngest of six sons, Bishop Donald J. Hying was born in West Dallas, Wisconsin. After earning his bachelor's degree from Marquette University and his master's degree from St. Francis Seminary, Bishop Hying was ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. His priestly assignments include parishes in Menominee Falls, the Dominican Republic, and Milwaukee. He also served as Dean of Formation and Rector at St. Francis de Sales Seminary in Milwaukee. In 2011, Pope Benedict XVI appointed Father Donald Hying, the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. In 2014, His Holiness Pope Francis appointed Bishop Hying as the fourth Bishop of Gary, Indiana. And five years later, His Holiness Pope Francis appointed Bishop Hying the fifth Bishop of Madison where his installation took place June 25th, 2019. Bishop Hying is a member of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Pro-Life Activities, the Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth, the Committee on Catholic Education. He's a member of the Board of Directors for Catholic Relief Services and Relevant Radio, and is the chair of the board for the Institute on Religious Life, as well as the St. Paul Evangelization Society. Please join me in welcoming Bishop Hying. It's a joy and honor for us to be together tonight and to have this many people here on a Sunday night in December while the Packers are playing is uh, really impressive. So it says that God has put something on your heart and has brought us together for a glorious purpose. I'd just like to begin with a, a little prayer because uh, we're in the season of Advent uh, this holy time of expectation is, is once again, we, we celebrate the wonder of Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, fill us with the light of your Holy Spirit. As once again, we await with wonder um, your birth, the Word made flesh. We ask that you renew our hearts in faith, hope, and charity. Fill us with joy that we may live in this world as your new creation as salt, as light, as leaven, um, in a world that is so often filled with, with violence, darkness, and despair. Anoint us with your spirit tonight as we share faith. May we be strengthened by this mutual sharing as brothers and sisters in you. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this talk kind of was engendered um, at last year's, the first, what's become uh, annual, uh, ecumenical Thanksgiving Day service, and I was meeting Father Scott at that event, which was a year ago last month, and that kind of evolved into further conversation, and we ended up talking about um, doing some kind of talk together, so this is it. We're doing this talk together, and I'm very grateful because um, I'm very impressed with Father Scott's wisdom, holiness, spirituality, and anytime that uh, Christians can come together and just share faith. That's uh, a wonderful and good thing for us. So we kind of talked about what we were going to talk about just so we're aware of um, each other's talks. But both of us are focusing on really Christ and the sacramental imagination. What does that mean? So I just want to reflect, um, beginning with the universal phenomenon of idolatry in ancient cultures. So like any anthropologist, any uh, student of ancient religion would come to the conclusion, every ancient culture fashioned images from wood, from stone, from precious metal, 
and worshiped them. Some of them worshiped uh, the elements. Others were just, they had these crafted images. And while from a Judeo-Christian perspective, we would see that as erroneous, as incomplete, as, as not um, the true reflection of God as God has revealed himself, would we not have to say that behind that impulse is a holy and good desire? That humanity has this universal desire to want to see God, to connect with the divine. And so within every ancient culture, with every human heart was this desire to, to see God, to see God's face. We know that uh, the Lord reveals to the Jewish people uh, the mystery of his transcendence, that God is one, that God is invisible, that God is omnipotent, that God is transcendent. And as a result, we see in the Decalogue this prohibition against making images of God. So for the Jewish people, that was something very sacred, that God is so much absolute mystery, so beyond us, that we can't fashion images of Shem. And yet, um, for those of us on uh, the same cycle of readings for liturgy, uh, today's first reading is for Isaiah chapter 65. And we hear the prophet Isaiah saying to the Lord, Lord, rend the heavens and come down here. We want to see you. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, you see that desire articulated over and over again. Lord, we, we want to see you. Well, we want you to come down here and to be with us. So I love um, the liturgy in Advent because those who organize the readings purposely put side by side Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus to make the linkage that every hope and desire uh, within the Hebrew scripture um, finds its fulfillment in, in the incarnation of the Lord. But I don't think even Isaiah would have dared to think that God himself would come to us, that God himself would enter into human history, that, that God himself would become uh, human. And so we as Christians believe something absolutely astonishing and unique, that the universal, mysterious, all-powerful, invisible God, who is beyond all imagining and all creation, humbled himself to become one of his own creatures, to, to leap the gap between the divine and the human. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the, the fullness of the word made flesh, steps into human history and forever changes it. So Christ then is the visible form of the invisible God, as Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians. We contemplate that for the rest of our lives and never plumb the depths. That in this one person living in one time and in one place, we have the fullness of God present to us, the wonder of the incarnation. So it's in Jesus, it's in his um, nature as divine and as human, two natures united in one divine person, that God bridges the gap between us and him. That, that gap that was um, created because of sin, because of death that the Lord comes to break the ancient curse. Secondly, it's through his ministry. So you get a sense that Jesus encountered um, all sorts of people and like a good physician of the soul, essentially asked them, where does it hurt? How can I help you? What do you need? 
Well, what's broken or wounded or dead inside of you? What needs to be fed? What needs to be forgiven? What needs to be nurtured? So the Gospels are just this narration of the Lord's encounters with all sorts of people as he puts back together the broken pieces of humanity, reconnecting them to God and to their own human integrity. And finally, of course, through his death and resurrection, uh, the Lord absolutely saves us by embracing within us everything that was sinful, human, and dead, and lifting it up to the Father. In the Catholic Church, the documents of the Second Vatican Council called Jesus Christ the sacrament of the Father. And so, again, that point being that Jesus Christ is the visible form of the invisible God. The Church would go further and say, the, the Church then, if Jesus makes God visible, we would say that the Church makes Jesus visible. So the Church is the sacrament of Jesus. So the mission of the church is really to, to extend the reign of Christ, to make the Lord present through time and space until the end of the world. So again, you see that, that sacramentality. Jesus is the sacrament of the Father. The church is the sacrament of Jesus. And in the Catholic church, we celebrate the seven sacraments, right? Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, anointing of the sick, uh, reconciliation, holy orders, and marriage. And we as Catholics would say, it's in those seven sacraments that the Lord definitively acts, that we, we see both in word and gesture and in the usage of something material through the anointing of the Holy Spirit that, that Christ acts and makes himself present. I think for us, the, the Eucharist is probably the paramount example of that where we lay our gifts on the altar of bread and wine. And, and we as Catholics believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they become the sacramental presence of Christ um, beyond a symbol, um, beyond simply an analogy. So that because the Lord has taken flesh, all of material reality has now been uh, transformed. And so we, we can see then that... Um, the sacramental imagination flows from the experience of the word becoming flesh. That uh, Father Scott, you said all matter matters, right? Because, because God has taken upon himself our human flesh and entered into the world. All that we experience has now become something consecrated and it can become an avenue to the divine for us. When we study the history of Christianity, um, the church has gone through waves of iconoclasm. So because Jesus became visible and human, that old prohibition against images no longer holds. So we can picture Jesus in the Orthodox Church. Um, they make icons of him, um, write icons of him. In Catholicism, we have um, thousands of images and crucifixes and pictures and, and statues. And all of that flows from the astounding realization that in the Word made flesh, we can now see God. And indeed, uh, the Eucharist becomes the visible form of God for us. So in that sacramental imagination, again, speaking from the Catholic perspective, I just made a, a brief list of sacramentals. So we have sacraments, which are the, 
the paramount um, absolute actions of, of the Lord through the church to reach us. But there's sacramentals and there's, there's millions of them. So think about St. Peter's Basilica, Mozart's Mass in C major, the Divine Comedy by Dante, um, pilgrimages to Lourdes or to Fatima, medals that people wear, crucifixes on the wall of a home, the usage of holy water, Michelangelo's Pieta, Francis Thompson's Crown of Heaven. So because the Lord has entered history, we, we can sculpt, we can paint, we can write, we can speak, we can imagine. Because the word has become flesh and entered in, into us. And so we, we can speak, the, the Irish speak, speak of the thin places between God and us. And we've all experienced the, those thin places where the divine has been revealed to us. That something seemingly ordinary can become extraordinary when we look at it from a particular vision. So really, what you see all depends on where you stand. And when we stand with Christ and we embrace his vision, do we not see things with an absolute clarity as the Lord sees them? And isn't that what it means to become holy, that we, we stand with Christ and we embrace his vision? So Christianity is a particular way of seeing. I, we would say it, it's the clear way of seeing everything in the beauty of its reality. Um, I want to comment or reflect on two Catholic saints that speak to us of the power of that vision. First is Francis of Assisi, who is kind of probably the most universal beloved character. Often he's kind of reduced to being the saint of the birdbath, right? We're kind of just seen as this hippie that um, kind of uh, hippies in the 60s claimed as their own. And yet, for him, uh, the sacramental imagination exploded his heart. Because once he embraced his conversion, which really was pinpointed by his extraordinary experience with a leper. So here was a man, he was the life of every party, he was a soldier, his parents had wealth, um, he had very worldly ambitions, goes off to battle, is wounded, ends up in prison, deathly ill, comes home. And that moment of weakness has this tremendous spiritual transformation. But he'd always been terrified of lepers. If he saw a leper coming, he'd run 50 miles in the other direction to avoid them. So he's going through his conversion, comes upon a leper, and instead of running away, goes up to the leper, kisses the leper, puts money in the leper's hands. At that moment, the tradition says that the leper turned into Christ. That the leper was Christ in his disguise. And, and that was really the, the trigger point for Francis' conversion. So he could write the canticle of the creatures because he saw in the sun and the moon and the stars and, and the beauty of this world, he saw in everything that God had created that the fingerprints of the divine. But at the very center of all of that was Christ crucified. And so he, he exalted in, in the glory of reality, but he disciplined himself to have a clarity of spiritual vision through a life of radical poverty. So it was a sense of uh, exaltation, but also renunciation. There's the sense of realizing the richness of what God offers all of us 
and yet realizing that it's only in poverty that one can be really free enough to appreciate it. The other is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa's moment came after she had left the security of her convent in Calcutta. Many people don't know she taught geography at an upper-class girls' school in Calcutta for years before she ever went out into the streets. But she'd look out the window of her convent and see this, this vast city with so much unimaginable human misery, and she wanted to be there. She wanted to be with those people to, to serve them, to love them, to let them know that, that God is with them. Finally got permission, goes out, and she, one of the first people she came upon was this, this man who had been abandoned in a gutter, um, dying, filthy, eaten by rats. Can you imagine? Worms coming out of his wounds. Imagine the smell. Imagine the dirt. Everybody walking past him as if he doesn't exist. Father Teresa was about this tall. She picked him up and with great tenderness carried him to the hospital. And because he was an untouchable, that hospital wouldn't serve him. So she sat down on a chair holding him and just said, very well, I'll just stay here till God changes your heart and you take care of him. So she's sitting with this man in the waiting room and the man looks at her with genuine puzzlement and says, why are you doing this? Like, why do you care? Why, why are you helping me? No one else does. No one else cares at all. And she looked at him and said, because I love you because I see Christ in you. Again, that, that vision of seeing allows us to look at all of reality through a spiritual lens, and all that can lead us then into a deeper relationship uh, with the Lord. I want to um, just close with uh, the sacramentality of language. So in John's Gospel, um, we have the beautiful prologue that begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. And there John is really adapting uh, Greek philosophical language, the logos, the word. So that the son becomes the word uh, spoken by the father, eternally spoken. And in Jesus, that word becomes flesh. Remember as a child going to Christmas morning mass and wanting to hear about the shepherds and instead it was always the prologue of John. It's like, well, what is this word? I wanna hear the Christmas story. But the prologue is the Christmas story. In um, the Office of Readings in uh, the Catholic Liturgy of the Hours during Advent, there's a beautiful excerpt from St. Augustine, and he's talking about the sacramentality of language. And he's saying, think for a moment of the power of language, that, that right now I'm making sounds with my mouth that you can intuit that we have a common meaning for. So I can take an idea in my head, speak it out to you, you hear it and receive it, and now it's in your head. So that, that word that's spoken, the sacramentality of language. Think of Helen Keller. She's not as well known these days, but Helen Keller was a very little girl when she suffered scarlet fever. And before she learned to speak or to read, um, she lost her sense of sight and her sense of hearing. So she had no language, and she had no way of receiving language. Imagine, that's unimaginable for us, isn't it? Imagine not having words. Imagine not having words to articulate your human experience. 
or to connect with anyone else. So she lived in this, this frustrated, dark, enclosed world until her teacher broke through. And it was that, that amazing moment when uh, her teacher developed a sign language into Helen's hand, pumped water on her hand from a hand pump, and then spelled the word water. And Helen finally connected, this is that. And she took her teacher by the arm and, and led her around to everything else, even though she couldn't see it, and, and began to learn words. So the logos, there's this word that is spoken into us. And because of that, um, our vision, our, our understanding of the world is completely changed. So God speaks to us. He acts in our lives. And how can that be except through our human experience and through our senses? So there's a movement of iconoclasm in the early church where um, people thought it was, it was a violation of the commandments to make images of Jesus. So all the images got smashed. Um, we, we see that tension at times people accuse Catholics of idolatry that we worship statues. We, we don't worship statues just for the record. But statues and paintings and medals and crucifixes and pilgrimages and poems and music and buildings, all of that speaks to us of the beauty of God and can plunge us into um, this, this spiritual reality. So when we celebrate the liturgy, we have a foretaste of heaven. And when, imagine a, a medieval peasant walking into Notre Dame in Paris and being taken into this entirely new world of beauty, of grandeur, of saints, but ultimately uh, the ancient and yet ever new narrative of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, God who, who lives beyond our imagining um, enters into human history and because of that, we have the power of sacramental imagination to understand that he speaks to us and indeed abides with us. And in our human experience, we can come to know God. Is that not what it means to be a mystic, um, to be a disciple, and indeed to become a saint? What you see all depends on where you stand. And when we stand with Christ, we see, we see everything clearly, clearly as God intends it to be for us. Is that now what we celebrate, especially in, in the wonder of this Advent season? Thank you. Right, so we have Father Scott coming up. Um, Father Scott hails from Tennessee and Texas, where he was raised in a family of faith and ministry. He moved to Chicago to study music, theology, and literature at Wheaton College, and later earned an MA in biblical exegesis. Father Scott has served in the Anglican Communion for almost two decades. For two years, he trained for pastoral ministry in churches in Sheffield, England, before returning to serve in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church of North America. He was ordained as a deacon in 2017 and as a priest in 2018. He now pastors at Christ Church Madison, an Anglican church where he and his wife, Marissa, helped plant in 2018. When Father Scott is not serving the church, you can find him hanging out with his four sons, reading a good book, or playing in bars with his local folk band, the Continental Congress. 
Yeah, they're great. Uh, please join me in welcoming Father Scott. Um, that was beautiful, Bishop Pying. This is a huge honor to get to, to do this with him and with all you guys. Amazing. What I'm going to talk about is very similar. There's so many beautiful points that Bishop Pying just said that is going to dovetail perfectly with what I want to say. I kind of want to take this diamond that Bishop Pying just put up, and I just want to turn it a little bit and look at it from a different perspective. So I want to focus on two things. First, I want to address a human experience. It's very similar to how you started Bishop Pying. A human experience that people have always attested to. And second, I want to address how the Bible speaks into that human experience. So we're going to start with this wide angle cultural lens, and then I want to dive down into the Bible. Sound good? Here's the human experience. People have always instinctively sensed that there is a world you can see and a world you cannot see. Similar to Bishop Hines' desire to see God. People have always had the sense that there's a physical realm and a spiritual realm. There is now a very vocal, very modern, very Western materialistic view that all there is is a physical world and that that sense of the unseen was always a foolish instinct and that we've grown up. But that view is an extreme minority in the broad sweep of human wisdom. Extreme minority. In every culture, on every continent, people have always sensed that we inhabit a physical material world that's populated by embodied human beings like you and me, which exists alongside a spiritual world, which is populated by spiritual beings. And not only that, people have always had the sense that these worlds are somehow interconnected, that they're actually in a relationship with each other. And the history of religion, if I can make an extremely broad sweep, is simply people trying to figure out first what populates spiritual reality, and second, how our physical world relates to that spiritual world. Okay, alongside with this, another human instinct is the belief that, to use the Irish phrase Bishop Hying used, there are thin places. You can go to in our world where the boundaries between the physical and the spiritual start to blur. Where you might say a portal is opened up between the two worlds. This is what temples and shrines and stonehenges and cathedrals are all over the world. There are places where humans are trying to access the spiritual or where we feel that the spiritual world is actually trying to access us. And so we build something there. To give an example, this is what ziggurats were for in ancient Mesopotamia. Ziggurats are those super old pyramids with steps. One of the oldest ones is from 4,000 BC. That's so old. My academic advisor was an ancient Near Eastern scholar, a guy named John Walton. And one of the things he studied was how ziggurats essentially functioned as portals. So the ancient Mesopotamians built these ziggurats with the specific idea that they would be a place that humans could ascend to heaven and also where the gods could descend and come down to earth. So the idea is that as a priest would walk up the steps, the boundaries between heaven and earth would get thinner the further you got up. So the idea is that the top of these things would literally be in heaven. Fascinatingly, without going into it, the Aztecs thousands and thousands of years later and across the ocean had the almost exact same conception of what their stepped pyramids were in Mexico. 
And I think that bears witness to this inbuilt human instinct. There's a seen and an unseen, and in some places, a portal opens up. So what about us in our disenchanted, demythologized world that we inhabit? Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor, who has written some important books like The Secular Age, which Upper House, I believe, had a breeding group on, right, Dan? So you guys are all about Charles Taylor. Um, he has this concept of the porous self and the buffered self. Have you ever thought of yourself as buffered or porous? Uh, maybe you should. But he basically says one of the things that separates modern Westerners, um, makes us so different than everyone else in history before us, is that people before us lived with an enchanted view of the world where the boundary between the physical and the spiritual was porous. Meaning, like if it was two countries, the, the borders were open. There was a free exchange. So the porous self is living with the assumption that spiritual forces can and will shape you. They actually have an effect on you. But then he says, that's no longer how we live now, so to speak, we have chosen to close the borders, the boundaries between the two worlds. We don't like the idea of our autonomy or our individuality being intruded upon by anything, much less by anything spiritual. So we kind of collectively as a culture have constructed for ourselves this materialistic bubble so we don't have to deal with it. So it's all of us kind of being like, la, 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 la. Hence the buffered self. Charles Taylor's pointing out the obvious. We don't live like the Aztecs or the Mesopotamians. We don't build ziggurats anymore. What do we build? No, I don't know. <laughs> Football stadiums? Exactly. That's what I thought of. And uh, an idol to the temple of sport. But you're all here instead of Packers, so way to go. And Taylor Swift, I might add. We don't do this anymore. And yet, and yet, the human experience refuses to go away. I loved a recent uh, Ross Dufat article. How do you ever say his name? He's Catholic. Um, and he said, no matter how loud Richard Dawkins yells, people are going to still encounter the spiritual. It's never going to stop. They're never going to stop yearning for the transcendent, as Bishop Hines said. And the scholar Alan Jacobs, who's a professor of humanities at Baylor, he says that the places that these repressed spiritual instincts come out in our culture is in the stories we tell and in the fantasies that we imagine. So we choose to live in this buffered materialistic world, and yet the most influential stories of the past century are all about worlds that exist alongside each other, and that in some places, there's a portal. So think of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's England alongside England, somehow existing in some way related to it is Narnia, and where's the portal? The wardrobe, right? In other books, there are different portals, the painting on the wall, the Don Treader, but there are these portals that open up and you can slip into Narnia. This is true of Harry Potter, the best selling books of all time. Two different worlds and there's a portal. Where's the portal? Platform of nine and three quarters. And just to prove that this is not a Christian kids book or just kids book thing, one of the most significant fantasy books of our generation is a book called American Gods by a guy named Neil Gaiman. It is dark and vulgar and I think demonic. I do not recommend reading it. So please, if you're not from my church, don't go home to your pastor and say, this weird Anglican priest told me to read this book. Don't. I stopped reading it because it feels like you're looking into Saruman's pa Palantir. It's a messed up book. And yet, I bring it up 
because it won the Hugo and Nebula Awards when it came out. And the entire plot is about how alongside normal American life, there is literally another spiritual reality playing itself out where the old pagan gods of the old world are duking it out with the new idols and gods of our day, like technology and the inter internet for the heart and soul of America. And not only that, in the book, there are certain what the pagan god Odin in this book calls places of power in America that are like portals where you can slip, you can be drawn into this other reality. And guess what? A world famous book written by an Englishman, he says in the book, is one of the great places of power in America. You're going to love this. It's the house on the rock. <laughs> like 30 minutes from here. Kid you not. It's one of the few international books that Madison actually features. Wild, huh? Have you ever been to House on the Rock? It is a weird place. There's something going on in the House of Rock that this Englishman was like, this is a place of power. I bring all this up to show that our culture may feel we are emancipated from these desires, but we're not. You can repress the spiritual, but it will not go away. Amen? C.S. Lewis famously wrote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. There is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire, no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Man. So let's shift to the Bible. How do the scriptures speak into these things? One of the amazing things about the Bible is its explanatory power. If you have a relationship with the Bible, maybe you've had that experience where all of a sudden it clarifies something that you've always felt, but you've never been able to articulate before. Has that ever happened to you? It's so true here. So what does the Bible say about the seen and unseen? Very, very quickly, I want to walk through seven Bible stories. We're going to give a full panorama of the Bible uh, to basically give a biblical theology of the seen and unseen. And it affects a sacramental imagination. So here we go. I should have given you a little handout, but I wasn't ahead of things. First, story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, the earth. The heavens in the Old Testament does refer to the sky, the celestial heavens. But in the Bible, it also carries with it the sense of a spiritual realm that as our Anglican catechism states, exists invisibly alongside our world. When Jesus says, our father who art in heaven, he's not saying our father who is in the Milky Way and in our galaxy. He's talking about the realm of God, right? So Genesis 1 is saying what Paul expands upon in Colossians 1, that Bishop Hine quoted, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So the Bible teaches that, yes, Christians do believe in a seen and an unseen. We even say this in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and... And at creation, we see there's harmony and access between the two worlds. So you have the invisible God somehow walking in a garden with the embodied Adam and Eve. There's congruity. Second story, the fall. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, there is literally a separation that takes place. So they are expelled from the garden of God. The way back is barred by cherubim who are spiritual beings with flaming swords. 
So where there was harmony and access between earth and heaven and creation, now there is discord and separation. And ever since then, one of the devil's main goals has been to drive a wedge between the physical and the spiritual. To divorce heaven and earth, to rend, to tear asunder what God had originally joined together. And this is the Bible's answer for where all our confusion and our longings come from. You were born to inhabit a physical world, to be an enfleshed, incarnate human. But you were also born with eternity in your heart for a relationship with heaven. And so because every one of us has been born east of Eden, we grow up with the profound desire for the transcendent, yet with the feeling that it's just beyond our reach, behind a wall and a door that we can't find. So Christchurch people will laugh at me, but listen to this quote from J.R. Tolkien, which by the way, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien prove that Catholics and Anglicans can be friends. Isn't that great? Here's what he says. This is a slayer. We all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. It's gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. That's where your longings come from. Third story, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Babel is hard to understand. If you've read it before, at first it feels like the people are like, let's build a really tall tower. And God's like this adult watching kids build a sandcastle. And he's like, you can't build a tower. You know, like, but when you read it in its cultural context, we find out it's no ordinary tower, but that with its top reaching into heaven is literally what Genesis says. It's almost certainly a ziggurat. And the people are trying to open up a portal to heaven by their own efforts. They are trying also to manipulate God to get him to come down, but it won't work. God thwarts their plan because their program is based on manipulation and a man-made agenda. So if the story of creation teaches that heaven and earth were created to exist in harmony, the fall teaches that our sin has cut us off from God in heaven. Babel teaches that we cannot get back by our own strength. So Babel is a picture of the vanity of human initiated religion to access heaven. This leads to the fourth story, which is Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. The context for Jacob's ladder is this cheeky, deceptive guy, Jacob. If you know anything about his story, he's just tricked his dad and his brother majorly. They want to kill him. So he is literally not sure what he's doing. He's running away from them. He's alone. He's confused. He's afraid. He's isolated. And I absolutely think that in the book of Genesis, Jacob at this point represents the human race. Running into the wilderness, afraid, isolated, guilty, fleeing from wrath. But going to bed one night in the wilderness, something happens. Let me read it. I'm so used to preaching when people have their Bibles. I wish, look it up later. Uh, Genesis 28, Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. 
Now, traditionally, we call this Jacob's Ladder, but ladder is a bad translation. In some English Bibles, you'll actually see a footnote and it says with the word ladder or a flight of steps. Because what Jacob sees is a stairway to heaven. No doubt about it. Biblically speaking, he sees a portal to another world. What's more, he sees angels ascending and descending, showing there was an exchange and he sees the Lord above it. So listen to how Jacob responds. He understands what he sees. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he gives the name, the place Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God, right? There's so much we could get into here, but the important part about this story I want to point out is that it reveals God's heart, which is to open up heaven to us once again. Amen. If the devil's mission is to cut off heaven and earth from each other, to separate the spirit from the body, this story reveals that God's mission is to bring them back together. And you can't miss how Bethel is the opposite of Babel. So you have to put Bethel and Babel together. Babel is the story of human exertion to try and get to God and its subsequent failure. Bethel is the story of grace, of God moving towards us. Jacob did not religiously earn this experience. God just showed up. The last thing I want to point out is the important little mixed metaphor Jacob uses. This is the house of God, the gate of heaven. It's just kind of weird. It's like, a, what, do you, what do you mean the house is a gate? The gate's a house. But it's actually a crucial biblical concept that the place where God dwells is a portal. It's actually a gate. It's a door. And this is crucial because it takes us to the fifth Bible story, which I'm going to briefly talk about, which is the tabernacle and the temple in the Bible. So the temple became the place in the midst of the people of, it became God's dwelling. And it was God's house and also therefore was the gate of heaven. It's like a Bethel 2.0. So for the people who went to the temple, they were going to experience something that Jacob saw in his vision. So just as Jacob sees steps that one could ascend into heaven, so the high priest would literally ascend steps when he was walking up to the temple to enter into the Holy of Holies. And this is in the Psalms. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That sacred space portal language. The temple was this place where heaven and earth somehow became mystically overlapped. The story of Bethel and God's temple project in Israel revealed God's heart to open up heaven to us once again. And this brings us to the sixth story, which is the story of Jesus. The stories all these flow to and flow from. So Bishop Hying, you talked about the prologue in John. So I'm not going to, it's this beautiful, amazing chapter. That's the Christmas story. But one of the amazing things about John 1 is it climaxes in this little story. The whole chapter ends with this, where Jesus impresses a guy named Nathaniel with a miracle. So if you're familiar with it, it's where he sees him under the fig tree and it blows Nathaniel's mind, right? But listen to what Jesus says to Nathaniel. This is the end of John 1. You will see greater things than these, Jesus said. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. 
The men who were listening to Jesus were devout Jews. They loved the Torah, so they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying, hey, remember what Jacob saw at Bethel? That's me. I am the true house of God. I am the gate of heaven. God gave one man, Jacob, a vision, a fleeting dream of a portal to eternity. Certain priests in ancient Israel had the privilege of walking into the temple, which God established after that. But he gave the whole world his son to be a portal to eternity. Amen? Jesus Christ, as Bishop Hying said, is the in-between. He literally embodies God's mission to remarry heaven and earth because he is born of a heavenly father and an earthly mother. There you go. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the mystery of God's will is, to, is his plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in his son. So this is the mystery of the incarnation that Bishop was talking about. And the gift of the incarnation is that now we don't have to wonder what spiritual, spiritual reality is like or who God is in heaven. We don't have to go to the house on the rock and try to figure things out from that crazy place. When you look at Christ, you are looking through an opening in heaven straight into the divine. And the crazy thing is that just as Jacob said, the house of God was the gate of heaven, Jesus repeatedly uses this same language to talk about himself. So for instance, Jesus says his body is the true temple, but he also says in John, I am the door. What a weird thing to say. I am the way. Meaning you not only can see eternity through Jesus, you actually get to enter eternity through Jesus. And this is how we should think about Jesus's ministry. It was him blowing open a highway between heaven and earth, as Bishop talked about, that was previously closed. When he, his entire ministry is defined by his descent and his ascent. Interestingly enough, when he descended in his incarnation and crucifixion, it was him piercing our humanity and earth and even the realm of the dead with heaven. When he rose and ascended, it was him piercing heaven with earth. In his ascension, Jesus takes an embodied, glorified human body back into the heavenlies. And in that gap that he tore open through his ministry, we are now invited to follow to walk up the steps where he has opened for us. Seventh story. I had six originally, but my wife said, you have to have seven. It's the, it's the biblical number. So there you go. Seven stories, the story of the church. Again, super similar to what there are things that I have that are literally Bishop Hying said, which is amazing. The Bible says the fullness of God became embodied in Jesus, but it also says in Ephesians one, that the fullness of Jesus dwells in his church. So God becomes enfleshed in Christ. Christ through his spirit becomes enfleshed in the church. Jesus became the temple of God because we are the body of Christ filled with the spirit. We become the temple of God, which means what Bishop said, just as Christ is the sacrament of God, a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. So the church is the sacrament of Christ. And this means brothers and sisters that the church, and this is kind of where my penny has been going around really, really long to go. The church is the house of God, the gate of heaven. The one holy Catholic apostolic church, which is enfleshed 
which gets embodied in local actual congregations around the world, is a portal to another world. Now, this might be my Anglican showing, but doing religious stuff in and of itself in a church building doesn't necessarily open the heavens. There were centuries where the Israelite priesthood continued to do its sacrificial thing, but there was no Shekinah in the temple. The glory of the Lord had departed. But when the people of God gather faithfully in Christ, where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly ministered, it indeed becomes a place where heaven and earth intersect. The church fathers used to describe the church as an earthly heaven. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? And Eucharistic worship as heaven on earth. We've talked about this a lot recently at Christ Church, but in our liturgy and also in the Roman Catholic liturgy, there's this clear sense that beginning with the service, there is a kind of ascent that starts to take place in worship. In the book of Revelation, we see that there is always worship happening in the realm of heaven before the throne of God. And the mystery of communion is that when we gather to worship as a church, our worship starts to harmonize with the worship of heaven in the unity of the Holy Spirit. So in Christian Eucharistic worship, the boundaries between heaven and earth start to blur. And of course, these realities climax in the mystery of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is for the church, what the covenant meal was for the elders at Sinai in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the elders first ascend the mountain, and then it says they eat and drink with God. This is what we do in the Lord's Supper. And on top of this, Jesus is crystal clear in John 6 that the food that is served in the supper is not food from the realm of earth, but it's food from the realm of heaven because it is the body and blood of the incarnate Christ. As we say, when we give the bread in communion, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. So in the church, we don't just encounter heaven. We literally taste it. Amen. Thus, we should pray in all our churches that the people who come would cry out, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. If I had time, I would go into the eighth story, which would be great, which is the consummation of all things and how at the marriage supper of the lamb, everything finally and fully comes together. But I don't have time. Go read Revelation. It's great. I want to finish by coming full circle to say this. Very similar to what Bishop Hying said about the desire to see God. The core of our human instincts that I talked about at the beginning are right. The longings behind the stories that we are captivated by are real. There really is a seen and unseen reality. There really is a portal that you can even walk to in places in Madison, Wisconsin, in God's holy church, the body of Christ. And to go back to American gods, we do believe that there are evil powers and principalities which are fighting for your soul and the soul of the world. Who would love nothing more than to keep the wool over your eyes and turn you into a disembodied wraith because that is the devil's objective, to kill and destroy, to separate the spirit from the body. But we also believe that God sent his son to redeem the world, to take captive and destroy those principalities and powers and to once again, open up the heavens. Thank you. Um, okay, so the first one is, please unpack the word sacrament, um, both linguistically and in application. What does the word sacrament mean? So in, uh, it comes from the word mysterion, which is uh, in Latin becomes uh, sacramentum. 
So it really speaks to uh, the mystery of God revealed to us. So in, in the Catholic Church, it's, it's the idea that it's an external sign uh, which constitutes, which gives grace, which has been instituted by Christ. So in, in the Catholic perspective of sacrament, we would say it's uh, a very sacred ritual that uses both word, gesture, but also um, substance in which, which God definitively acts. So if you think of baptism, uh, there's a formula of baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We use water, we use chrism, we use the white garment. So we would say that I think all Christians would share this, that, that in baptism we become adopted children of God uh, through this sacramental action, that, that Christ is acting in the sacrament and in the person of the priest uh, for the sake of um, bringing this person into relationship with the Father to experience salvation. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think the thing that I would add is sacrament, uh, most of the definitions are very similar to what Bishop Pine said. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. And in the Christian sacramental imagination, the, the physical reveals, the scene reveals the unseen in some unique way. And there are sacraments, uh, you know, you, you, you call them dominical sacraments or the seven, or maybe that's our word. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, you, you talk so. about the seven sacraments of the church, yeah. the Greek, the Orthodox view is that there the whole, there are endless mysteries, sacraments in the world, but there are, for instance, for us with, with Holy Eucharist and baptism are these unique places that God, mm-hmm. our means of grace, our sacraments in the church. But the sacramental view of the world, like Bishop Hying said, it extends where for Christians, we see that everything in God's creation in some way reveals truths about the unseen world. Um, so it, it starts uniquely with Christ. It goes to his church and all the things that Bishop Hying said. But I think the sacramental imagination, like you were talking about, Bishop, it, it goes to the way we see how things in the world reflect the unseen. I'm always struck that in the Catholic Church, marriage is one of the seven sacraments. So to say that in the, the marriage of this man and woman bound in Christ, there, there's an absolute revelation of God's presence and grace in this relationship. And therefore, um, St. John Paul II put it beautifully. He said that if you look at uh, a Christian marriage, a Christian family, um, that reality becomes an icon that opens up the inner life of the Trinity. So we can see in this, this mutual giving, this mutual loving, as St. Paul says in chapter five of Ephesians, um, be, becomes a sacrament of the marriage between Christ and the church. So again, the, 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 the physical, the visible, um, reflecting uh, the, the invisible um, and the supernatural. Yeah, and to go off that, this is why Christians care about the body why Christians care about creation, because we think that there's a connection between God's revelation in creation. And so to mess with, say, marriage would be to mess with the things that are being revealed through that icon. If you think of ancient Platonism, um, Plato really saw the, the authentic human person as a soul trapped in the body. So like matter was, was bad, matter was fallen. So really the, the spiritual path was to escape the material, to escape the body. Um, that's not the Christian view. 
because it wasn't the Jewish view. So we're incarnate spirit. So again, it's that union of, of body and soul, mind and heart. It's always a both and mm. proposition of, of both the material and the spiritual, or that the material becomes the spiritual, yeah. that embrace. I didn't talk about this because I already think I went too long, but I've, I was so fascinated with the resurrection. And I, what happens when your spirit is separated from your body? You die. That's called death, right? And that is the consequence of sin. It like gives birth to death. And what's interesting about the resurrection, if you think about Jesus coming to, to bring back things together, the resurrection is the moment mm -hmm. where the spirit and the body are brought back together in a final way. It's amazing. Thinking of that, he, he takes heaven, he pierces into earth, he goes all the way down to the realm of the dead, but then he takes back the body and he pulls it together in the resurrection. It's just amazing how central that is to the gospel. And the devil wants to separate those two. And, and that, is, that is just so amazing how central that it is. And then at the end of all things, it's the marriage of a new heavens and a new earth, Christ and his church. It's, it's really cool. I think it's, it's why the church has always insisted that Christ rose in the physicality yeah. of his flesh. Because I think in the you know, post-enlightenment age, there was a whole movement of theology that said, Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead. It was just kind of the subjective spiritual experience that the apostles had. But as St. Paul says, if, if Christ did not physically rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins and we're the most pitiable of people. So the, the conviction that Jesus' body rose from the dead, not that his resurrected body was exactly the same, it wasn't, but that there was a, a physical dimension to the resurrection. I mean, we insist on that in Orthodox Christianity. Let's, um, the next question kind of follows upon that. Um, you spoke about ancient culture's impulse to try to see God. How do you see that manifest in today's culture? And maybe a second part of that question could be, are all ways of seeking the spiritual the same, or are there spirits that should be avoided? That kind of thing. Do you want to go? I, I can just say, I think an interesting thing about the, the concept of the buffered self that I talked about with Charles Siller, as I understand it, is that there's actually a part of the openness between the physical and the spiritual world that's terrifying. So uh, you think of Narnia and it's all, it's amazing. Who doesn't want to go to Narnia? But again, I talked about that weird book, American Gods, and you do not, when you read that book, you're like, I don't want this. This is terrifying. And one of Charles Taylor's point, and I'm quoting Charles Taylor, like I've like read all of his stuff and know everything. I don't. So I'm, go read him yourself and see if this is true. My understanding is that his sense of the, the buffer itself comes from, we just don't want to be vulnerable anymore to basically the demonic because we, we also believe in powers and principalities that we are at war with. That's what the apostle Paul says, right? So part of the understanding is that we are actually also trying to protect ourselves from evil, spiritual evil, spiritual forces of evil. And I think the, the idea of suppressing the reality that there's anything spiritual out there at all is not a way forward. We, we can't do that. That's foolish. Um, but as the other sense is to open yourself up to anything that you think is spiritual. Think of all the false demonic ways that we would say are, there is something there. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his Narnia series with Tash at the end, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. But you should not open yourself up to everything. To quote him again, is it Ross Duthat? Duthat, am I saying that right? Whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about. New York Times guy. 
his most recent column I read, which was fascinating, was warning people who are kind of getting into the spiritual again and like trying all the different hats on and cults and everything because it's fun. It's like, you need to be careful that you don't mess with this stuff because it is tapping into something real. And that's where I think what's unique about the Christian view and, and the gospel's answer to this, it's opening us up to the spiritual in a beautiful way, but it also, through Christ, we have protection from spiritual evil and clarity about what is evil and demonic and what is not. So it's not just that we need to be reintroduced to the spiritual in our age. So it's not enough to just say, let's all be spiritual again. It's how do you know? And, and what is good and what is evil and what spiritual is not going to suck you into some, yeah, other demonic world. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Bishop Pying? Or... Oh, absolutely. No, very well said. I think um, I talk to people that would say they're atheists or agnostic and just try to get at what is it that makes you tick? Like there has to be something transcendent. There has to be some longing for something spiritual within you. And there is, but I think we've come to such a point of secularity that people don't have the language to even articulate their longings anymore. So part of the, the beauty of our religious faith, of the scriptures, of our prayer life, of our liturgical life is it gives us language, it gives us images, it gives us ideas, it, it tells the story. And we, we've lost connection with what um, theologians would call the meta-narrative, you know, the super story of Christ. So story of my life is only going to make sense to the extent that it's interwoven and somehow connected and reflective of the meta-narrative of God's story, which is the scripture. When you think of what Facebook is, it's kind of um, a pointless tale, right? We just put all kinds of things on Facebook, just these random human experiences. But if you ask people, what does that mean? I think that question itself would, would puzzle people. So I just think of the quote from Macbeth, um, history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, that's pretty bleak. Um, but, but I think in many ways that, that's reflective of where we're at today, yeah, that, that people have lost even the hope that there's this fundamental transcendent meaning and purpose to their life that applies to all of us. So at best, we can create our own story, we can create our own meaning, but we're pretty much left to our own devices. And I think that's, that's what we need to be saved from. And when the gospel's proclaimed and heard and received, then we realize, no, this is our story. The, the, this is the meaning of, of my life. This is the meaning of our lives. This is the meaning of all of human history. Um, but if you don't get there, then you're really condemned to make up your own story. And try to squeeze some sort of drab little hope from it um, that, that's going to be very meager. Next question is, how should we prioritize sacramentals or sacraments for spiritual growth? So from the Catholic perspective, you know, sacraments are um, actions of the church. They're liturgical. Uh, they're definitive actions of God. Sacramentals are, are not sacraments, but There'd, there'd be things like, um, as I mentioned, you know, medals, um, statues, pictures, um, pilgrimages, retreats. I mean, all those things that plunge us into the divine, but are not liturgical or, or public in that same way. So sacramentals kind of lead us into the divine 
and, and remind us uh, of the presence of God in all of reality. The sacraments are the definitive actions of the church you know, instituted by Christ. But, but all of that um, really just draws us into the Lord. And, and I think not just in an intellectual way, but in a very affective, emotional way. So as a Catholic, whenever I um, am facing anxiety or struggle or pain, I just instinctively pull out my rosary and start praying the rosary. And it's just, uh, it's not an intellectual thing. It's, it's just, uh, it's a very human, devotional, affective thing. So there's, uh, we can so over-intellectualize our faith that, that we forget about just the emotional warmth and heart of it. And, and to me, the sacramentals really connect us to that more affective need for us just to, uh, to feel uh, the warmth of God's love and his presence. I would add to that just from a sacramental Protestant tradition that historically all the, tr the traditions that I'm in and certainly ours as an Anglican tradition is that we encounter Christ through word and sacrament. That's, that's literally how we encounter him. It's what our worship is based off is, is word and sacrament. And my most tactile example of this, which i talk about in our church all the time. I actually talked about it with Dan on a podcast series. The road to Emmaus is if I have like an elevator pitch is the resurrected Christ is coming to encounter people. These two guys are on the road, if you know the story and they don't see him at first, but by the end of the story, they do come to encounter and, and see the risen Christ. And two things happen in Luke 24. And I'm convinced Luke gives us it as a as a way of seeing how we encounter Christ, this side of the resurrection, because all the resurrection accounts, they come, I guess in John, he appears to the women, but they come and they don't see him at first. They just see he's not dead. How do you encounter him? I think Emmaus is answering that question. Two things happen in Emmaus. The first is Jesus leads them through the greatest Bible study ever, right? Hmm. And as he's doing that, their hearts are starting to burn, but they don't see him after, after the Bible study. They then go to a table and Jesus then doesn't just share any meal with them. He does the same four verbs in this meal that he does at the institution of the Lord's Supper and in the feeding of the 5,000, which is he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it, and they see him. And they say afterward, did not our hearts burn within us while he was saying the scriptures and how we, they went to tell people how they saw him in the breaking of the bread. And so I think it's, it's the way that Jesus encounters his church is through his word and through the sacraments. And so I, I, it is just commanded baptism. He commanded obviously in the great commission. And it is, it is part and parcel of the way that God communicates himself to us. The other part I love about road to Emmaus at that precise point, Father Scott, it says he vanished from their sight. And uh, Pope Leo the Great commented on that in his scriptural commentary. And he said, it's as if to say, Jesus is telling us no longer look for me in my physical form. Look for me in the Eucharist. Mm. It's like the, the fullness of Christ has been folded over into the sacraments. So Jesus vanishes at precisely the point that there's this flash of recognition that they see him in the Eucharist. Oh. So it says he no longer needs to be there physically because they've now apprehended that he will be with them in the power of the sacrament. Yeah, amen. So and it's a beautiful way that it ends. I think for how we would probably both understand our liturgies and our worship is Emmaus. What we mm -hmm. do, what our church did this Sunday morning is we, we encountered the risen Christ in word and sacrament. 
And I tell our people that we want to expect that same thing. We want to have the spiritual heartburn of the word of God, reshifting and reworking things in our soul. And then we, we come and we encounter him. And so the prayer is that all worship would be an Emmaus experience. And we want people in Madison, like the two guys on the road who are walking and who are confused and don't know what to make of the stories they've heard. I just smacked my mic. Sorry. Sorry. But we want them to come into our churches and have that same experience. Amen. Um, this question is kind of um, reflecting on the point that you made, both of you, about the church um, being the portal to heaven, the temple. Um, the question asker says the individual Christians are also temples, hearkening back to Paul when he talks about our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the question asker says, what does this look like? How can individual Christians be temples or portals to heaven? When I think of that question, I think of the saints. So we have this beautiful tradition of saints in the Catholic Church. And a saint really becomes, in a sense, an, an icon of God's action and presence in the world. So uh, saints were radically different in their temperament, in their experience. And some were like saints from infancy. Others were very wild children until they had a conversion and, and came to the Lord. But, but what unites every saint is there is a point where they surrendered to the Lord and his grace in such an absolute and radical way that that person gave God permission to enter in through the power of the Holy Spirit and so transformed their life that that their whole life became really a living gospel. So to me, the answer to that question is that if we are serious about holiness, then we, we open ourselves to God and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and, and we live in this world as a new creation. So there's a point, um, I think in the early 80s, Mother Teresa was given an honorary doctorate by Harvard University. So Mother Teresa goes to Harvard to receive this doctorate and all these um, East Coast intellectuals are falling all over themselves to meet her, to talk to her. Harvard is not the bastion of Roman Catholic Orthodoxy. I think we know that. Uh, and a reporter asked all of these intellectuals, what was it about Mother Teresa that made her so attractive and interesting to you? Knowing that many of them were agnostic at best. The response was simple, but very telling. They, they said she was different. She's different than anybody else that ever has come here. So the Hebrew word for holy indicates difference. So when we say that God is holy, we're saying God is different, different, different than us. He is radically other. And yet the good news of our faith is that God in his otherness wants to refashion us to share in his holiness. So if holiness is to God what humanness is to us, um, the beauty of God's love for us is that he, he wants to so fill us with himself um, that we become an extension of him. And I think that's how we live as, a, as an icon of, of God in this world. And I, I look to the saints as models of that. Thank you. Yeah, I think I would say to that too. I totally agree. I think my first part answer to that question would be my understanding is that in the Greek, most of the time it says that you are the body of Christ, the temple of God. The you is plural. And there are places where it says individually, obviously it does mean on us individually, but there is a sense, the Bible has a real a corporate sense of the, the temple nature 
of it. Again, it's not wrong to say that our individual bodies are temples because the Holy Spirit is in us. But with that, I think it, it's, it's kind of a scandal. The incarnation was a scandal. How can this be that the fullness of God dwells in this man? It's, it's still a scandal. And the, the church, the theology of the church is totally a scandal as well. How can this be? I mean, the first time I really connected the dots in Ephesians 1 that said that the fullness of Jesus dwells in his body, the church. I was almost afraid to preach it because I was like, I, is this, is that, but it's true. And when you read the Bible, you just see that this again goes back for how much Jesus cares about the body and God cares about the body. The Bible paints this insanely high view of the human body and of the human person. So in Genesis, as I understand it, the garden is actually kind of set up as a temple and there is no pagan idols in the temple because God does put an image of himself in the temple, which is Adam and Eve, because humanity was made in the what of God? In the image of God. Now that image gets marred, but it does not get taken away. And the Christ comes to, he's the perfect image of the invisible God, but part of what he's doing is recreating and transforming his people to be the perfect image of God that was God's original plan. And so this is an insistence of Christians in today's world that the body matters, that the body has dignity beyond anything we can possibly imagine because God created us to literally be his icons, to be his images. So I think part of the answer to that is just like reckoning with the insanity of the high view that God gives to the human body. And so one of our ministries in today's world, and I think this is something we share between us, is the good news that, that God cares about you, that he loves you, but also that your body matters, that he cares about your body. And I don't know, I, I think that's part of the scandal of the church is like, how can this be? We, my wife and I and some of our friends were talking about that today, but it's true. So this next question is very well written. It's beautiful. I'm just going to read it. All right. Um, person says, one of the most beautiful Catholic masses I have been to was at an Anglican ordinariate parish. It, is, it also made me feel a profound longing for Christian unity. How can the sacramental imagination lead us toward that goal for which our Lord prayed after the Last Supper, which he, at which he instituted the Eucharist? That's a great question. That's a beautiful question. I'll let you fully answer, answer the question in a second. <laughs> but I was thinking of that. I'll say, so Bishop Hyden's going to give an amazing, huge answer. Uh, no, just kidding. But I, one of the things that I heard somebody say, which I said to Bishop Hyden when we were having a conversation, is that the things that are tearing the church apart today are not what divides us. Right? Let me say that again. The things that are tearing our church, churches apart the body of Christ around the world right now, specifically in our context, are not necessarily the differences between us. And we have such an opportunity because everything we're talking about is about the gospel. It's the reality that Jesus Christ is the incarnate son of God, that he's come to put his fullness in the church and minister to the world through the church. And we absolutely agree on these things. And between us as Anglicans and Catholics, we do have a sacramental vision for the world and the body and worship that there are differences that we have, but my goodness, the, the, the unity that we can come together on for the sake of mission, I think is, is really special. And that's why I'm so excited to be able to do this. This is really special. 
I think there's a distinction within Christianity of the churches that kind of embrace the the sacramental imagination and practice some form of of sacrament or of understanding of what that is, and then uh, the churches that that would reject that or simply be um, sola scriptura, you know, just just based on scripture. So I think to experience liturgy, even if we're not in full communion, even if we can't. Um, share the Eucharist with each other, to still experience a, a liturgy together is, at least points us in that vision of, of potential unity um, that perhaps for many of us will, will only be realized in, in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. But it certainly also points us to the pain of our disunity. And when you look at um, history of Christianity, at least in the West, we were united for far longer than we've been divided. So that, that gives me hope that, you know, could there be a day uh, in a way that's perhaps at this point beyond our imagining, could there be a day when we indeed would, would find unity again, you know, the unity that the Lord prayed for at the Last Supper. But uh, the beauty of events like this is that um, despite our differences, you know, we're in different churches, different denominations, and yet um, so much of what we both have said, we can absolutely agree with each other uh -huh. because, because the scriptures are, are the source of God's revelation. But, but to apprehend that, that sacramental understanding uh, of Christ, of the church, of the human person is, is absolutely an integral to the gospel. And I think that's what, what we share and what we're articulating um, and reflecting on tonight. That's probably not an answer, but it's, um, mm. we're, we're seeking... We, we pray for that unity and we long for that unity. Huh. But, but part of that is, is being realistic too in terms of, of what the differences are and not just um, artificially papering them over or saying that they don't matter. So it, for me, it's um, really a, a profound expression of respect when we can respect our differences and not simply ignore them or diminish them, um, but also to see the greater unity in Christ. I agree. Mm. Um, this question, it kind of um, refers back to something you said, Bishop. Um, how does your view of the Eucharist as more than a symbol affect your experience of the sacrament? Well, yes, if, as Catholics, we, we believe something absolutely astonishing, and we, we call it the real presence. Even for 2,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church has tenaciously, stubbornly, heroically clung to the conviction that what Jesus says in John chapter 6, he meant in a, a very literal sacramental way that he is the bread of life and that we are called to eat his body and to drink his blood. And it's telling that in that passage, most of Jesus' disciples at that point walk away from him. They leave. And he lets them go. He, he doesn't say, wait a minute, come back. Let me redefine what I said. Um, he lets them leave. So in, in a way, um, Christian discipleship at that point in John's gospel stands or falls on the acceptance of the Eucharist. So again, I think as you were saying, Father Scott, just the, the, the wonder, the seeming human impossibility that in Jesus, we have the fullness of God, and in the church, we have the fullness of Jesus. Like, just the shocking nature of that. I find the same with the Eucharist. Yeah. So there's times when um, 
I'm celebrating the mass that I lift up the host. There's times it's as light as a feather. Others times it feels very heavy. But, but to think that through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the Lord Jesus has made himself fully present in this sacramental way, not to remain on the altar, but to be carried down and to be fed to his people. I mean, to believe that, to be convicted of that, changes everything for me. Because it means that Jesus just isn't this beautiful idea. He's not just a historical memory, but that in a very visible, physical way, um, he abides with us in the Eucharist. So we retain the Eucharist in the tabernacle. We, we do Eucharistic adoration. We pray before the Eucharist. You know, at the time of the Reformation, some of the reformers called that idolatry because they rejected belief in the real presence. Um, for me, our belief in the real presence is everything for me as a Catholic disciple of the Lord. And um, I struggle to believe it more profoundly and um, pray that the Lord continue to increase our vision. But really, um, the Catholic sacramental vision flows from the Eucharist, that, that in the Eucharist, the unseen becomes seen, the invisible becomes visible for us. Um, there's times when I'm lifting up the host and I think Isaiah would have done anything to be able to have this experience, right? Like he longed to see God. Here's God in visible form for us. That's a radical conviction. And either you believe it or you don't. And I always think, what would an atheist think if he came into a Catholic mass right before communion? So there's a point when the priest holds up the, the host and we're all saying, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Atheists would say, these people are insane. They're talking to a piece of bread, right? But, but we know better where we're talking to the living Christ in the manifestation of the Eucharist. And John chapter six then becomes really the, the, the central text that helps us understand how the Lord continues to abide with us. So I reflect as well, um, you know, if the Eucharist is Jesus' way of choosing to abide with us till the end of the world, then it's also the Eucharist is able to teach us how we should abide in Christ in the world. And I think of the humility of the Eucharist. I think of just the simple presence of the Eucharist, of the vulnerability of the Eucharist. And in all those qualities, we, we can see our own discipleship taking shape. So Eucharist shapes us, mm. forms our discipleship. As the Lord is in the world in the Eucharist, so we are called to be. My final thought on it is just, um, God came into the world in the person of Jesus so fell in love with us that he wanted to stay in a physical way till the end of time. And the Eucharist is his way of staying with us and abiding with us. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was amazing. I, I think it's interesting that there are three things in the scriptures that are called the body of Christ. The first is Christ's mm. physical body. Mm. The second is the church we've been talking about. And the third is the Eucharist. So there's a clear connection between these things. And you know, Anglicans and Roman Catholics would disagree on, on certain things when it comes to the real presence, even though we do believe in the real presence and our sacramental and the way that it is a, a means of grace to us. Um, but the original question of, of how it affects your experience, I, I just think really similarly to the scriptures. 
in the sense that the, the scriptures are the word of God and we come to the word of God and they have this profound effect on us, but there is a posture too that you can bring to the scriptures um, that opens you up to the, to the word of God. And there's something that happens, I think, in the Christian life when you understand some of the things that, that Bishop is talking about, that God is literally coming to encounter and meet us in word and sacrament, uh, that it becomes a massive part of your experience and it does disciple you. It's a, it's a discipleship tool. Again, word and sacrament in, in our worship is paired together and they're, they're two lungs that we breathe with. So I think uh, for me, when I first started becoming a part of a sacramental church, I think it started affecting me before I understood what was happening. Um, and it, that's a part of Christian discipleship and, and that grows over time as you are worshiping in word and sacrament. Okay. One last question for both of you. What is one of your favorite expressions of the sacramental imagination? So for example, a piece of music, a work of art, what comes to mind? Go first. Yeah. Oh man. In my brain for better or worse, I just love stories and I'm obsessed with, I mean, I've talked about fantasy stuff tonight. So I love literature and I think that's been a huge part for me. And J.R.R. Tolkien, I always say J.R. Tolkien, but he has two R's, I wanna give him his due. Uh, 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 uh. He wrote a book called On Fairy Tales or On Fairy Stories, I think is the title of it. And if you've never read it, you should go read it. And basically what uh, this would been in the longer version of my presentation, but his point in this, this article is that God created humans to subcreate and that G.K. Chesterton, by the way, two Catholics, man, I'm just lobbing it up for you guys. Get all the Catholics I'm quoting. G.K. Chesterton has this other book in the uh, chapter in a book called Orthodoxy that's called The Ethics of Elfland. So they're thinking very similarly. But the idea is that when Tolkien is writing the story of Middle Earth, he's actually creating his word for it is subcreation. He's creating this other world that's his creation. And yet Middle Earth is a place where you encounter the beauties of the gospel. And if you love Lord of the Rings, like I do, maybe you've experienced this is true, but he finishes it, this article on fairy stories, by basically saying that when done, when it's reflecting the gospel and reflecting Jesus, it becomes kind of a fairyland where like the gospel, it reveals itself. So it's a sacramental experience, right? You're, you're reading Lord of the Rings or, or stories that have this beautiful, redemptive, open, you know, you talked about all these works of art. For me, I think that's, I'm just so fascinated by that, which is why I'm fascinated by fantasy. It's why I'm fascinated by fiction. And to me, I just, that's been a huge for me. And I love, I think Tolkien says at the end of On Fairy Stories, behold, God is the God of angels, you know, and men and elves. <laughs> it's like how he drops his mic. You know, uh, interestingly enough, and again, I wanna, don't want to end on this dark note, but in the beginning of American Gods, in the preface, Neil Gaiman says, and it's super dark, and he's not a Christian, but he says, all the names in this story have been changed and refixed, you know, but only the gods are real, which is terrifying. Mm. Um, and so I think stories in art, they are this place that we we encounter God in the subcreation of the works of his people. I don't know. Very good. For me, I, I could think of a hundred, but um, the one that stands out is the experience of Lourdes. So Lourdes is a town in southwestern France, 
where our Blessed Mother appeared to St. Bernadette in 1858 and told her to dig in this spot and she would find a spring of water. And sick people who bathed in that water were healed. So today there's millions of people that come to Lourdes and they're all there for a miracle. Uh, they bathe in the water. There's a magnificent basilica. And when you go there, there's, uh, you know, speaking of portals or places of, of connection, uh, for me, there's just this overwhelming sense that God is present, that Mary indeed appeared here, but that she is still here interceding for her children. And Lord's really be, is, is the inversion of uh, the modern world, because I think in the modern world, we worship power, health, beauty, youth, and have very little time for the opposites of those things or, or the people that don't embody those. In Lourdes, the, um, the, the sick and the marginalized have the right of way. So if you're on one of the walkways, you better get out of the way if there's somebody coming by in a wheelchair because they're going to uh, come through. But it's a place where God's compassion and human poverty intersect in a very sacred way. And I've gone into the baths at Lourdes and have two experiences that happen every time. And, and many people have told me the same thing. So you're, you're up in the mountains, you step into this stone bath of ice cold Lourdes water and you're freezing. And then the, they submerge you in the water and you feel this tremendous warmth. Like there's just this warmth as if God is just embracing you. And the second is they don't give you a towel when you get out, but you're immediately dry, but you're just immediately dry. That happened to me every time I've gone. Um, but for me, Lourdes is, is a sacramental place where, where God is acting. And again, in the, in the Catholic tradition, we have all of these realities where, where the Blessed Mother appeared and spoke the word of God usually to children, usually to the humble, usually to people on the margins, um, just reminding us that there, there's this profound intersection of, of the spiritual and the material. Um, most people go home from Lourdes not experiencing a physical miracle, but I think every person that goes home from Lourdes would say they've been strengthened through the grace of that experience to embrace their illness and their infirmity and, and to see God in it. Um, if I live long enough to retire, I'd love to go live at Lourdes and just um, celebrate sacraments in English for the pilgrims and, and help, help the sick. That would be, uh, be my goal. Thank you. Okay, well, that's the end of our questions. So um, I think I speak for all of us hoping that we can do something like this again.